this is Greg Lauer, and I want to welcome you to episode one of the Illusions podcast, where I want to start off by talking about the book itself uh, very briefly. The one I'll be using for the podcast is what they call the mass market paperback, which is, you know, typical paperback size. It weighs in at a hefty 192 pages, and I mean that uh, word hefty as kind of a little joke because a 192-page paperback, you know, barely weighs anything and would not be considered a hefty book by any means. But the content, the content that Richard Bach jammed into only 192 pages plus an introduction of only a few pages, that content is life-changing if you allow it to be. And that content is really hefty. And I mean that in the best possible sense. I like to use the mass market paperback, and I've given away probably 100 copies of the mass market paperback because it's only a few dollars. I think it's like $8 on Amazon or something like that. And it's only a few dollars, and... There's plenty of room for margin notes, and because it's such a small-sized, physical-sized book, it's easy to carry around and read a page or two. Um, You know, maybe if you're standing in line or something, it's easy to read a page or two. I've known a bunch of people that read the book uh, in its entirety, cover to cover, in just a couple hours on a Saturday. Whenever I do give away a copy of the book, I I tend to recommend to people that they read it through in one sitting, if possible. And if not, possible to do it in one sitting. Maybe someone's a slow reader. I tend to be a slow reader because of dyslexia. But if someone's a slow reader, I just always recommend that they read it through completely cover to cover and then come back and do it again and take the time to pause whenever something jumps off the page and tries to grab your attention. And then I recommend that somebody, once they finish the book, doing that slow read-through where they pause and maybe do underlines or margin notes or highlights or both, that they come back and, and read the book even a third time right away, doing that same deep dive kind of read, taking a moment to just stop at anything that grabs their attention and pause on that and reflect, write margin notes, ask themselves or ask the book questions, Uh, see what kind of answers may be revealed. Uh, This book originally was published in 1977, and Richard Bach had become somewhat famous as the author of Jonathan Livingston Seagull, which is an absolutely incredible, small, but huge book. Small in in number of pages, but huge in content. Uh, By the time he was (laughs) barnstorming as a a little, I think he was flying a biplane or flying another small plane and doing the barnstorming that he describes in, in the book Illusions. At the time he was doing that, uh, Jonathan Livingston Seagull had already been adapted into a movie. The movie was not necessarily a runaway hit at the time, but was very well known. Uh, and 
I was very small at the time, but I remember the movie, and the movie was fascinating to me, even as a, a young child, six or seven or eight years old. The movie for Jonathan Livingston Siegel was fascinating. And then later on, I read the book and found it to be equally fascinating. And the reason I bring that up is, is Richard Bach introduces illusions as a lot of people asking him with the fame of Jonathan Livingston Siegel, what was he going to do next? What was his next big thing? And I love the way Richard answers that question. And interestingly enough, in the book Illusions, he answers that question and introduces this book, and he answers it with an introduction, or some people would call it a foreword, or a prequel, or a prelude, or something like that. It's not even labeled, and it's really easy to skip right past it and not even read it. But in there, Richard said it was a question I heard more than once after Jonathan Siegel was published. What are you going to write next, Richard, after Jonathan? What? I answered then that I didn't have anything, I didn't have to write anything next, not a word. And that all the books I had done together said everything that I had asked them to say. So every saying, I'm going to skip a little bit here, but then he says, still every summer or so I took my antique biplane out into the green meadow seas of Midwest America, flew passengers for $3 rides, and began to feel an old tension again. There was something left to say, and I had not said it. What Richard says next, I, I laugh almost every time I read it. I do not enjoy writing at all. If I can turn my back on an idea out there in the dark, if I can avoid opening the door to it, I won't even reach for a pencil. And I've heard several interviews and read several interviews with Richard Bach where he has repeatedly said that back in those days, writing was an enormous struggle for him, not because he didn't enjoy it, but because he knew that the ideas that were coming through him or from him were of such importance and could be so weighty that it was he felt an enormous responsibility to get them right and as someone who is a creative it's very difficult when you want to express things perfectly but you never quite feel like you do so i can i can really empathize with richard bach on that case where I have struggled to write a 10-word a, a postcard to somebody because I wanted it to be perfect. And I, I love the way Richard put it. If there's, if I could avoid doing this, I won't even reach for a pencil. But then he paints this beautiful word picture right after that. He paints this beautiful word picture, and here I quote, But once in a while there's a great dynamite burst of flying glass and brick and splinters through the front wall, and somebody stalks over the rubble, seizes me by the throat, and gently says, I will not let you go until you set me in words on paper. End quote. And I love this next sentence. That's how I met illusions. 
I think to myself, an author who says he met his story, it's not that he sat down and wrote his story, but he met the story. Uh, there's an interesting uh, sort of a pre a preview of coming attractions, if you will, that he that he sets down next. There in the Midwest, even. I'd lie on my back practicing cloud vaporizing and I couldn't get the story out of my mind. What if somebody came along who was really good at this, who could teach me how my world works and how to control it? What if I could meet a super advanced? What if a Siddhartha or Jesus came into our time with power over the illusions of the world because he knew the reality behind them? Uh, almost everybody knows who Jesus was or is, depending on your belief set. Either Jesus was a fully human person who is no more, or if you're of a specific faith practice, Jesus is still a living being, was both fully man and fully divine, and was crucified, died, and resurrected on the third day, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. But the very first time I read this book, I had no idea who Siddhartha was, so I looked it up and realized, well, that's that's the historical person we now refer to as the Buddha. And the Buddha talked about achieving our awakening or our enlightenment or our nirvana by carrying on a set of practices that bring us to the moment where we understand the true nature of reality and it's that moment where we achieve our awakening or what would be called the enlightenment or nirvana but what if i could meet a super advanced what if a siddhartha or a jesus came into our time with power over the illusions of the world because he knew the reality behind them and what if i could meet him in person if he were flying a biplane and landed in the same meadow with me, what would he say? And what would he be like? And I love this introduction because it's so easy to pass right by and not realize that he's actually laying out <laughs> the entirety of the story before he lays out the entirety of the story. And he says, maybe he wouldn't be like the Messiah on the oil-streaked, grass-stained pages of my journal, uh, the very first time I read this, I passed right past that little section because it never occurred to me that just a few pages later, the book begins with what looks like some notebook pages or journal pages that look like they have been grass stained and oil streaked and there's fingerprint smudges and so forth on there. Uh, so again, Richard is kind of teasing us with what's coming. He says, maybe he wouldn't say anything this book says. I love the way, and later on in the book, Richard even says, um, as we near the end of the journey, Richard says, you know what? Everything in here might be wrong. I don't think it is, having read the book close to a hundred times now. I don't think everything in there is wrong, but I love the way he phrases that, and you'll see why later on. 
um, the book is really heavy on our perception of reality and the way that shapes our the reality around us. So that if we believe what's in the book is wrong, then we're only ever going to see what's in the book is wrong. And that's why a lot of people I know and a lot of people I've given the book to, I've had about 15 people, I've given away a little more than 100 copies, and I've had about 15 people bring me their copies back and tell me after reading through the first time, um, well, this is just crazy, you know, or, well, that was a good story, but there's nothing in there for me. And if that's their belief, that's true. Uh, <laughs> if they believe there's nothing in there for them, then that is true. Uh, in fact, when I received my very first copy of the book, one of my best friends at the time, uh, who's turned out, thanks to the gift of that book, to be one of my best friends of all time, I was in the midst of a really deep personal crisis, and he looked at me and he said, I think you might be ready for what's in this book, but I'm not entirely sure. And he said, I'll know if you're actually ready for what's in here when you tell me what you think after you read the book. If you don't already have your own copy, I'm going to recommend that you do get your own copy, uh, at the very least, so you can follow along as you're listening to the podcast, or read ahead, or read through, then read through again, then read through again, and then come back and follow again as you listen through on the podcast. And then you'll be able to write your own margin notes and, and take your notes and ask your questions. And you might find that you come to a different conclusion than I do. And that's wonderful. Let's interact about that. Let's have a discussion about that. Uh, one of the things I want to do with the podcast is, for at least premium content subscribers, I want to have listener interviews where we can discuss our different perspectives on the sections in the book. Because, yes, I'm doing this podcast, but it's based 100% on how I understand this book and how I have received the message in this book over the years, over almost a 20-year period. So, okay, we'll pick back up again. And says, but then again, the things this one told me. And here are some of the things that he said that we magnetize into our lives whatever we hold in our thought, for instance. And that may sound very familiar nowadays. Nowadays, when we have had maybe the last 10 or 15 years in the self help community and in the metaphysical community and in the the folks who have been on the Oprah show and listened to Oprah, so many of the folks that she's had on as guests on her show have and really gotten a big, big platform because of their appearance with Oprah. So nowadays, this idea that we magnetize into our lives whatever we hold in our own thought, you know, we know that as the law of attraction. And between the movie called The Secret, and all of the different people from The Secret having appeared on Oprah with her enormous exposure and platform, the law of attraction, the idea that you will draw into your life or magnetize into your life the thoughts that you hold really strongly and the thoughts you give energy to, that is almost passe these days. 
it's almost so well known that almost no one gives it any thought. But in 1977, when Richard Bach was writing this book, that was that idea was not at all mainstream. That idea was known to a few teachers and a few people that would become personal development. Uh, I'll, I'll use the term guru or uh, personal development thought leaders. That idea that we magnetize into our lives those thoughts or we create our reality through our thoughts, that was revolutionary back in the late 1970s, whereas nowadays we've been exposed to that so much that it would be easy to skip right past that and think to yourself, oh, okay, yet another Law of Attraction book, but just understand, this book was published a about 30 years, or a little more than 30 years before The Secret came out, and a little more than 30 years before Law of Attraction became somewhat mainstream and then became passé. So I said, well, if that is true, then somehow I have brought myself to this moment for a reason. And I love this the way he continues and concludes this sentence. Now, let me go back to it. Then again, the things this one told me that we magnetize into our lives, whatever we hold in our thought, for instance, if that is true, then somehow I have brought myself to this moment for a reason, and so have you. I love that, because we... We, we hear all the time, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I'm not going to go on a limb and say that I am somehow becoming your teacher of this. But at some point, you became open to the kind of things that we're talking about on this podcast, the kinds of things that are in this book. And if you have found this podcast somehow, well... I take that as evidence that you have brought yourself here for a reason. I'm not doing a significant amount of promotion. In fact, I'm not e I'm not even doing any promotion of the podcast until we get to at least episode 5, maybe even episode 10, because I want to have enough content for people to review before we do any promotion. So if you've already stumbled on episode 1, well I would say Perhaps you have brought yourself, somehow brought yourself to this moment for a reason. I love the way Richard continues here. Perhaps it is no coincidence you're holding this book, or in our case, listening to this podcast. Perhaps there's something about these adventures that you came here to remember. And at first blush, the idea that there's something about these adventures that you came here to remember might trigger in your mind the idea of reincarnation. Well, I know for me, the very first time I ever read that, I thought to myself, oh great, now this guy's talking about reincarnation. And to a degree, there is some suggestion throughout the book that that might be the case. But the more I learn about Buddhism and especially the Mahayana school of Buddhism, 
that focuses on a rebirth and karma from a very different aspect than we're used to from a Western mindset. The more I start coming to grips with this idea that perhaps there's something about these adventures as relayed in this book that we've come here to to remember. Uh, because the Buddhist mindset on rebirth is not the same reincarnation that we've always heard about here in the West. The Buddhist idea of rebirth is it can, it's not lifetime after lifetime after lifetime and continually climbing up the ladder of learning. The Buddhist idea of rebirth, and especially in the Mahayana tradition, which is more focused on lay people rather than monks and Buddhist nuns, that tradition about rebirth is is framed within the mindset of moment by moment as we learn more and become more in tune and more in touch with the true nature of reality we can technically consider ourselves to have been birthed anew now i realize that comes in to a little bit of a conflict a little bit of a conflict with a judeo-christian mindset uh, but again, I grew up in a Judeo-Christian mindset. I have been a Catholic. I have been a Protestant. I have been a very strict fundamentalist. I have been a very loosey-goosey evangelical. I have been a member of a Pentecostal church and still am. And I have been a member of a very, very laid-back and non-denominational setting. So I've seen Christianity from... Uh, about a half dozen different perspectives and respect Christianity from many more perspectives than that. And I don't want this idea of the Buddhist concept of rebirth to come into conflict with the Christian idea of being born again as part of a salvation experience. But I think there's also some areas where they overlap because in the Buddhist mindset, to be reborn is simply a new extension of your existing lifetime within this reality in that you've learned some new information, you've taken on some new wisdom, you've gained some new insight, moved a little closer to the awakening or the enlightenment. And in such, given that our entirety of our existence is temporary and impermanent and constantly in flux, we are constantly being reborn as sometimes better versions of ourselves and sometimes not. Whereas in the Judeo-Christian mindset, that rebirth is that being born again experience for salvation is supposed to be bringing us in line with the true nature of reality that there is a God, his son came to earth, his son was sacrificed to atone for the sins that we commit and will commit. And then through that atonement, we have been forgiven. And we can then rejoin God in heaven at some point and be part of the true nature. Well, there is some overlap. And I think the interesting thing is I get the feeling from reading this book that Richard Bach has been exposed to or perhaps did very deep dives into all of those faith traditions uh, 
seeking the the truth. I love this the way he finishes out this this introduction. Perhaps there's something about these adventures that you came here to remember. Or let me even go back a little bit further. Perhaps it's no coincidence you're holding this book. Perhaps there's something about these adventures that you came here to remember. I choose to think so. And I choose to think my Messiah is perched out there on some other dimension. Not fiction at all. Watching us both, and that's you and me and Richard, and laughing for the fun of it happening just the way we've planned it to be. Now, that last little bit could seem uh, just a little weird, but as we go into the story more and more, you'll understand um, exactly what he's talking about there. And in the last few minutes, I want to address this word Messiah as used in this book and as used in the subtitle. The book's title is Illusions, and the subtitle is The Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah. The very first time I ever read the book, I came face-to-face with my previous understanding of the word Messiah. And in that previous understanding, I attached that word only to Jesus of Nazareth as being the Messiah. Over the years, I've come to learn that the word Messiah, which comes from a Jewish word, Mashiach, that means God's anointed. And if you hear the word Jesus Christ, that word Christ comes from a Greek word, Christos, which means God's anointed. And there was the original Jewish uh, conception of that word Mashiach, which meant God's anointed, and was originally applied not to a single person that was known as the Messiah or the promised Messiah that, that the Israelites were always on the lookout for and then determining that people weren't the Messiah and punishing them by putting them to death one way or another. Originally, going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years, that Jewish word Mashiach meant God's anointed even for just a singular purpose. That was often applied to the king that was being anointed into kingship or was frequently applied to uh, religious leaders in the temple or leaders that would come and begin to uh, unify the people either behind a cause or behind a purpose or during a specific event. And then the word became increasingly applied to the concept of one singular person that was going to be either a religious leader or a political leader or both and eventually took on the connotation of God's anointed in terms of an atoning sacrifice. From the Greek mindset, the idea of an anointed one or a Christos was originally applied to anyone the gods showed favor to for a certain task or a certain uh, a certain cause or even no cause whatsoever, because the Greek pantheon of gods were frequently quite capricious 
but that Greek mindset of Christos was originally conceived as anyone the gods showed favor on. So as we go through the rest of the book and we start looking at the word Messiah, if you find yourself offended and think that either Richard Bach is being uh, is being offensive or is being blasphemous, if you will, I would ask you to set that aside temporarily and try to understand the idea that Richard is trying to convey in here. And if you find if you find my use of the word Messiah offensive, I'm going to ask that you set it aside long enough to join me with the content, and let's discuss. Uh, first, of course, I'll be discussing it all by myself since I'm hosting the podcast, but uh, if it's really, really going to be the kind of thing that creates an issue, uh, feel free to contact me on the contact uh, at the contact address given on the website for the for the podcast, and uh, or contact me through uh, whatever platform you're listening to. I'll have my email address uh, with the podcast information. If my use of the word Messiah is going to be the kind of thing that really bothers you, feel free to contact me there and let's set up a time to discuss how that word is being used within the context of this book and how that word was used originally so that we can... I Basically, I don't want you throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I don't want you to miss the really good wisdom and content and, and, and the, the meaty content of the book getting hung up on the way one word is used. And if you have no problem with the way that word is used, then awesome. We can move forward smartly. And on our next episode, we're going to actually start getting into the content of the book with chapter one. For now, this has been... Uh, a fascinating and, and frankly a lot longer <laughs> examination of the introduction, a three-page introduction than I had anticipated. But I think that gives kind of a clue for how this is going to go, even though it's only 192 pages, and even though some of those pages barely have anything on them, except a few carefully chosen words here and there. Uh, I think you already get the hint from this first episode being um, already about 30 minutes. I think you get the hint that there is a lot of ground to cover and a lot of meat to, to sort of chew on and digest in these words. I really look forward to however many episodes it takes, but I really look forward to this journey with you. Here, If you find some value in the podcast, I would ask that you share with a friend and have them subscribe. Please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to so you never miss an episode. And if you would like to consider it, take a look at um, the exclusive content capabilities. There'll be a number of very small bonus episodes. There'll be a number of listener Q&A type episodes for, for the exclusive content subscribers. There'll be, my intention is to also have uh for people who are subscribing to get the exclusive content, my intent is to have, uh, say, a 20 to 30 minute 
discussion together where we grab onto whatever they want to talk about regarding the book or not the book, maybe. But we'll do a 20 to 30 minute discussion on whatever listeners want to talk about uh, if they're selected for a listener interview. That's kind of what I have in mind. Uh, Again, if you enjoy the podcast and find some value in here, please subscribe. Please tell a friend. That will help more people discover the podcast along the way. That will help more people uh, to bring themselves here for a reason. Perhaps it's no coincidence. And uh, until next time, my name is Greg Lauer, and uh, this has been the Illusions Podcast. See you next time.